looking to start a podcast but don't know where to begin? Look no further. The team at Dodge Media Productions has 20 years of experience as podcast listeners and observing the industry and eight years experience in podcast production. We can help you take your podcast from idea to fruition and we'll make the process seamless and easy. We'll help you with everything from recording and editing to hitting the charts on Apple Podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Contact us today and let's get started. DodgeMediaProductions.com You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. Today we are talking about episode 146, the movie Flower, from 2017. We watched this one on Canopy, so you too can watch this if you have a library card for free on the Canopy app website. (laughs) Maybe app. It's directed by Max Winkler, and if that last name sounds familiar, he is Henry Winkler's son, but a very accomplished director. He did a film called Ceremony in 2010, and a film right after this one called Jungle Land in 2019. It stars... Zoe Deutsch. I should mention too, while we're talking about Nepo Babies, she is the daughter of Leah Thompson. It also stars Katherine Hahn, Tim Heidecker, and Adam Scott. The DP is Carolina Costa, and she is the youngest person to win the Ariel Award, which I guess is kind of like the Oscars, but for Mexico. So she is a a well-awarded DP. And the writer is Alex McCauley, Matt Spicer, and Max Winkler. And I think that kind of comes, this script was actually on the blacklist. We've mentioned that before. Other scripts. If Alex McCauley married Macaulay Culkin, he'd be Macaulay Macaulay. (laughs) I like it. Um, In 2012, it was on the blacklist of the best unproduced screenplays. And so it's kind of like, not quite where screenplays go to die, but... I guess, how would you describe... I'll put a link about... Yeah, the blacklist is just... uh, uh, I think it's informal, but maybe now it's formalized. It's a list in Hollywood of the best screenplays that haven't gotten into production. And I think that could be for a variety of different reasons. I'm not really sure why that would be. But as a rule, if a script keeps going into turnaround, then I think at a certain point, people start to think it's never going to get made. Right. Kind of like a politician. If you keep losing the elections, eventually they figure you're you're, uh, unelectable and that people move on. So I would be curious to know, because we've reviewed films which are really well received that were on the blacklist for a number of years. I'd be curious if there is any trend into why it took so long for them to get produced. Um, Matt Spicer did Ingrid Goes West, who we know the sound mixer on that film. And we really like that film. Aubrey Plaza joined, if memory serves. Yes. And then Alex McCauley, A House on the Bayou. That sounds somewhat familiar. And Don't Tell a Soul. I don't think you've seen either of those, but they do sound a little familiar. Yeah. Max was sent this script by the guys. He, he said the guys, so that's why I looked up these two to see if these were them. But I'm not getting the connection. But anyway, the guys from Eastbound and Down. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good recommendation. Mm-hmm. They're creative folk. Mm-hmm. In fact, he worked with somebody in that world on the sound. 
I mean, mm-hmm. the uh, music for the picture. He says, uh, we'll get into our regular stuff here. I'll go back to the synopsis and everything, but I feel like now is a good time to see. He was very much inspired by the 80s movies. He had an older brother that watched a lot of those movies, and he felt that they always kind of had this confident, cocky kind of, what's the word I used before we turned on the mics? Uh, outrageous character that was usually male. And so he wanted to kind of turn that on its head, much like another famous director I know who kind of flip-flopped. Flip the genders, yeah. Yeah. So if we ask our listeners to hum the theme song to Risky Business, we don't have to pay, right? I think so, yeah. Okay, if they okay. do it on their Go own Go ahead and time. do that, guys. So he he liked that. And so that's um, he was drawn to the character of Erica who kind of embodied that okay. um, idea. Since we went down this road a little bit, I would say about halfway through the film, I made a note, is Erica a manic pixie dream girl? And I think she is. Obviously, she comes after Garden State, but I felt like her look and her vibe was very similar to Natalie Portman's character of Sam in Garden State. You know, although you would argue, I think the classic definition of a manic pixie dream girl is petty misdemeanors, and I don't know if extortion, uh, that seems like a felony. So... So let me continue with the synopsis and then we sure. will we'll keep things on pace because I in editing, uh, let's see, Buck, we we went about 18 minutes into the episode before we did the synopsis. So I want to try to keep uh, us on track. Yeah, we're, we're trying to mix up a little. Yeah, key, I know. It's enrichment for the listeners. There you go. So the synopsis for this film is a sexually curious teen forms an unorthodox kinship with her mentally unstable stepbrother. I want to come back to that, but we're going to try to keep things uh, going. Uh, the tagline for this film, I only got one for you, so you better like it. All it's right. bad decisions, good intentions. Okay, I actually kind of like that. I know, I know. I think Short that, and punchy. Yeah, I think it does work. And so before we get to the pickup line, maybe this will derail us slightly, but I do want to talk about <laughs> when I read the synopsis, A Sexually Curious Teen, Erica's character, I think, yeah, the opening scene is she's... Performing oral sex on a sheriff, I believe. Sheriff's deputy, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And basically her and her friends, they said entrapment, but he said entrapment. But they're basically extorting him. Yes. They get him on video admitting that he's received oral sex from a minor. And then they take him to an ATM and, and get him to take out a bunch of money. I didn't, I don't, I don't think of that as sexually curious. No, no, it's not. That that seems like somebody who's maybe exploring their own. To me, she was using sex as a tool. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. It establishes later in the film and dialogue that she has only ever performed oral activities, has not done other activities, which says to me, yeah, that not really curious. Like you said, it's a means to an end. Sexually curious to me implies that she's getting something out of it. And I guess she is monetarily, but from a interpersonal or, gosh, I I don't want to sound like a prude, but basically she wasn't getting any gratification sexually from all of these encounters that she was doing. Yeah, she wasn't curious. She wasn't trying new things. She was doing one thing over and over again for money. Yeah, but not in the sense that we normally think of it. Well, but even then, I'm just saying, if you're curious, you would try new things. And she's not trying anything new. So, to me, curious is not the adjective I would use. Yeah, it was more like a weapon, right? 
Yeah, like you said before, it is a tool, a means to an end. Mm-hmm. So this film was shot in only 17 days, but in doing my research, they they had a lengthy pre-production. Well, I guess lengthy when you think it was two times what their shooting schedule was. She said it was about double. So I'm guessing about a month they had to prepare for this. And as somebody who loves a lot of time to kind of do pre-production and prepare, I mean, that's my sweet spot. That's where I feel alive kind of getting together all of the stuff that we're going to use and thinking through it and how are we going to make this film and it just this film maybe I didn't like all the characters right away but it the process that this film took to to be a thing it very much is is in alignment with how we make films I feel so 17 days is a little short. I mean, it's not ludicrous, like four days to shoot a feature film. That would be ludicrous. That was, that's crazy. Right. But um, <laughs> that that is relatively quick, especially when you think uh, if there's improv involved. And you mm-hmm. mentioned pre-production. So one way that I think improv films, I, I think, of course, of, you know, the classics like A Mighty Wind and Best in Show and that obviously a very talented cast, but also I think they work out the, the, the arcs and the beats and the characters and their backstories and relationships. And so that pre-production goes in there helps quite a bit, right? When you're doing any sort of improvisational work, I, I, I think to make your day, you need to put in the time in pre-production. Absolutely. There's a fantastic interview with Leah Thompson and Henry Winkler interviewing their children, but moderating a discussion about the film. And one of the things that Leah said is that, that Zoe, to prepare for this, read a bunch of books. She read some Judy Bloom books, probably to get into the mind of that teenager. I think which is funny because it was written by a grown woman, but she read Reviving Ophelia, Go Ask Alice. Like she just, I thought it was, her mom was very impressed by her kind of diving into this. And I think Zoe took this part very seriously and to prepare for it. I realized that I use a term I don't know if we've talked about before to make your day. So in case we haven't talked about this before, Right. To make your day means to get accomplished in a day of shooting everything that was planned. And that might seem like a a given or a trivial thing, but it is actually quite difficult because filmmaking always has unexpected things that pop up. And making your day is critically important from a production standpoint, like the business side of show, in order to stay on budget because for example imagine if you have a location for one day but you don't get all the shots in that location now you have to pay for another day you have to schedule if it's a new day added to the schedule that all of the employees have to get paid for an additional day it's a big hairy deal and when you do improv uh, that just ratchets up the chances of unexpected things so for example you don't know exactly how many lines of dialogue you're capturing that day. And somebody might go off on a riff. I mentioned I saw a headline that supposedly Mrs. Doubtfire had 2 million feet of film because Robin Williams would just keep riffing. And what director wants to say cut to Robin Williams riffing, right? But on the other hand, there are financial and logistical limits. So making your day is a big deal. Very much so. And in this interview... 
Henry asks Max, like, on a typical day on a, a TV series, you do like nine pages? And Max said, I've never finished nine pages. <laughs> and his implication is, it's often much less. Yes. Right? Right. And so then if you have a 20 page day. <laughs> right. Oh, and, and also related to that, right? You mentioned TV shows. There are multi-camera shows and single camera shows and single camera shows are a lot more like films. And so that since there's one camera, there's one setup. So if you have two characters talking, you're probably going to catch at least three different angles, right? The master of them both, and then a, a close up or a medium on each of the two talking. And every time you do that, you have to stop and move the camera and move the light and everything else. So that's why it takes a lot longer to film than you would than when you see it on screen. Now, there are ways to help that. One is adding multiple cameras, but then it can be difficult to light everyone correctly. And there's a cost to that, right? Now you have two camera crews and they each come with <laughs> their own costs. So it, it's, it's amazing how long it takes to do something short. Yeah. And all the departments want to prove that, you know, so makeup runs in and, you know. <laughs> yeah, last looks. Yeah. <laughs> so let's see. So we'll kick us off and tell us what the pickup line for flower is. Okay. So the, I, I don't know if heavy breathing qualifies as dialogue, but that's the first sound we hear from the character. But then we get, oh yeah, right there. Yeah, you got it. Very creepy. Yeah. And that's a, the, the sheriff's deputy that is kind of, immediately shows us what Erica's kind of money-making venture is. And in, in storytelling, they say, start as deep into the action as possible. And in this case, that kind of has a secondary meaning. Mm -hmm. We don't find out until later what her motivation is, mm -hmm. but we do see with an interesting cutaway of her spreadsheet that uh, she has ac accumulated quite a bit of money with this uh, extortion activity. Yeah, I want to go back to the scene with the sheriff because you were talking about show don't tell and we she calls him by his first name, which I suppose she could have asked him, but there was a sense of I thought there was a reference to like last time or something. I believe so. He's yeah. a repeat customer. So, although I guess she didn't extort from him the first time or you would hope that he wouldn't do it the second time, but uh he he um, hands her cash oh, before the extortion, right. so it appears that she starts the relationship as a like traditional a pro prostitution, right. and then once she has uh, the evidence, then moves on to the larger pay. Right. And so, but it just, her casualness during, well, I guess right after the act, and then even kind of the way that her and then her friends talk to him, they're... This is a grown man. He's a sheriff. He's got a, he a has gun a and gun, a badge. And she does not act afraid of him at all. She's definitely in charge of that transaction the entire time. So I do not want to seem critical of, of the actor, but it's going to sound this way. He didn't really have the, the, the build or he didn't carry himself like an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy would. They're selected specifically for a very intense, very authoritative look. And this guy looked a little bit more like a community service officer to me. And traditionally, I mean, that that sheriff's department in at least the early 90s had 
not a great reputation about being nice guys, you know, yeah, or like I, wimpy. I, I, for I don't think they've completely left behind the police brutality claims. So that character being an LA County Sheriff was kind of a little bit of a, hmm, to yeah, me. didn't quite track. We do find out later that her savings goal is she wants to bail her dad out of jail, who we see in a photo I think on, on her computer and then in the locket. And it's portrayed by actor Jake Johnson. Yes, uncredited. Yeah. Um, I don't know if he got paid for those two photos, but there maybe you have he's it. a buddy of somebody. Maybe of Max. Yeah. So her world's kind of being. She's 17, so either she's nearing, she's either like a junior or she's probably, I would think, be nearing graduation. We never see her. Oh, no. She does go to school because she punches the one girl at school. Yeah, I think they establish in dialogue, at least by implication, that she's her in high school. new stepbrother is 18 and she's 17. Correct, correct. So her, so she's at the point where, you know, I mean, that is a transition going from being in high school to being an adult. She's not yet an adult. We know that. And then her mom has a new beau and the brother says... Like maybe they're engaged, but they're, he's moved in. So a strange man, well, I mean, she calls him strange, but a new person (laughs) comes into her house and eats her food, as she says. And then now she's going to have a stepbrother who's getting out of rehab. And I want to, I'm going to just say it right now, because I don't want to forget the gentleman. There's a guy that walks out and she goes, Ooh, he's hot. And her mom says, Oh yeah, that's. I can't remember what name. The sponsor. She, yeah, that's his sponsor. And that's actually um, the camera operator. Oh, wow. <laughs> they, they didn't even have a budget for background. And so he's the camera op. So actually the cinematographer must have been filming that scene, they said, because normally she, Carolina, did... Um, controlled like did all the lights yeah, the light and, and moved all the lighting yeah. and then she had a, a camera opera dp that and his name is shoddy and he is the hot so now guy. i'm i'm now in my mind's eye I, I know he didn't direct this but i hear gary marshall's voice like okay who are you is good looking you over there camera op you're on screen <laughs> that's exactly i know that's why i was like yes definitely their budget is like a hundred x what ours often is but the vibe and as i'm hearing them tell stories i'm like oh we've done that or right yeah you oh, just grab that, somebody that and go you're so going to familiar. be in the, yeah i know it yeah. was really fun as it, i was listening it's like if a director says that the dp or camera op has to then be on screen selling his car that that that's a, an independent film move right right <laughs> exactly yeah <laughs> stay tuned everybody so they pick up the brother and she immediately ha- I'm trying to think it's like she's curious by him. I can't tell if she just wants to mess around with him or like annoy him. And like, I get more curiosity. Like she wants to thump his melon this. And cause he's very, his demeanor is withdrawn. He seems very anxious. Yes. Thank you. I was going to say timid. He just seems yeah. on edge. I from in the dinner scene in the restaurant, I I got that she enjoys poking everyone around her to get a reaction. And then when he has a big reaction, I I don't really know why, but she does have 
she like turns on a dime and suddenly is now concerned about his well-being. Right. Zoe said in one of the interviews that she felt that Erica wanted to, because she was afraid of being vulnerable, she wanted to hurt people before they hurt her. But I agree with you. Her mom actually has to bribe her to, because the kid runs out of the restaurant, to run outside and to bring him back in. And so she doesn't want to do it at first, but you're right. That scene where they're out in front of the restaurant, she is, is trying, is like, being very, I guess, sisterly or maternal, trying to care for him and and help him kind of feel better or at least come back in the restaurant. Yeah, and and then she shows a curiosity. Um, how, however, as as you were talking, it dawned on me. Spoiler alert! Um, oh yeah, that uh, they end up together at the end of the film, which of course is is not necessarily creepy because they're not related to each other they have no like shared history or whatever but so maybe that's why because she just she's vibing with him they, they have a connection and so right. maybe that's why suddenly she when he has his panic attack and, and runs out of the restaurant and she starts talking to him and, and he he kind of gives it back to her in a way that no other character has oh um, and and she offers to use the one thing that she uses to manipulate people and he declines. And that's kind of the only person in the film that said no to her. Right. So I think maybe that's part of how it establishes them as, as equals. Right. Yeah. I had trouble since we're going to jump to the, I know we're going to be bopping back and forth here, but I really had trouble buying that last scene or second to last scene where they did hook up. Because I could see them almost just more being like best friends. Because since their relationship started as like pseudo siblings, I know they're not related and they didn't live like that. But because he wasn't entirely honest with her, I don't know. Maybe, I, I mean, just I guess. But she wasn't entirely honest with him. See, I I actually bought that because they are both broken, come from like trauma, and then in that situation, in that moment, they thought they were going to be caught by the cops, which they were. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about as the film was going along was the consequence of of their actions with the Adam Scott character, and credit to the filmmakers, they got exactly what would happen, right? Mm-hmm. So we talked about it, and, and I, I was glad to see that they didn't Hollywoodize the ending, right? He ends up in jail. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Yeah, that, no, as you talk it through, I think it, I, I'm getting it. Because they're still young. They're 17 and 18. They're impulsive. You're right. They kind of were on this high of... They were headed for Mexico because right. they had killed a guy and they just and they knew they were in trouble and they were just fleeing. And so it's very possible that with all of that going on and then like he says to her, he loves her. Right. And she probably mom it, maybe didn't even say oh, that. Yeah, I, I doubt that that the character, Catherine Hahn's character, her mother ever said that to her. I think what we're reacting to, just to be honest, right is visibly you would not expect those two to be together. Now, I think, you know, I'm not 
criticizing that poor actor. He's a fine fellow, but he's a little thicker and Mm -hmm. she's not. And you would not expect that. So I think as a viewer, that's part of it is that they don't look like they would be together. Like she would want the camera up the hot guy, not, <laughs> not him. So I think that's part of why maybe they don't seem like a, a perfect match. Right. But I think it is because, yeah, it just felt too quick. I think if we had more time. Yeah, they didn't, we didn't really see them develop a whole lot of a relationship. I mean, we saw some, but like you said, that, that is kind of really going from zero to 60 pretty quickly. Yeah. I didn't map it out. But it's, what, is it even a month from when they first meet to, to, to when they decide to be together? I think I needed to see maybe one or two more scenes where he is taking care of her. Because I think nobody else, or maybe even like him being paternal towards her or something. Because her dad's out of her life. And then Max Winkler even said that he saw Catherine Hahn and... Erica's relationship is more as friends or sisters than mother daughter. So I think maybe if he and Erica, if he kind of, I don't know. Luke is the character's name. Yeah. Okay. So if Luke, I don't know, told her, don't do that. Or, you know, he tried to put some boundaries on her because she was boundaryless. The mother daughter relationship had no boundaries. And I think if he, which he did, like you said, he denied her sexual advance so I think if he had maybe done that a couple more times, or maybe if he had, I don't know, put a blanket on her. I don't know. I'm <laughs> talking out loud, but maybe I would have bought it because then she's like, oh, this person really cares for me and wants the best for me. And so those feelings would be, you know, exchanged. Okay. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm beating a dead horse. <laughs> <clears throat> Which is appropriate since our last film was Buck. Exactly what I was thinking when I said it. The scene with Catherine Hahn when she has had just about enough of Erica and she says, I can't hold on to anyone. You scare them all away. That was a rough scene. Like, I, I think I audibly gasp. Hmm. Not for you? Uh, n- n- no, I don't know that I would actually buy that. I mean, I think Catherine Hahn's character looks to be a hot mess. I don't think she can blame much on Erica. (laughs) The scene where they were at the hotel after they've run away and they're watching cartoons and she kind of gets in the fetal position and kind of nuzzles up to him. I thought that was so good because it kind of showed how vulnerable they were and how they're still children. Right. I think uh, Zoe was like 22 or 23 when when they filmed this, but certainly the characters are, yeah, 17 and 18. They really don't know anything what's going on, but I think it shows that Erica is looking for comfort, right? Stability, right? She's chasing this father who is a deadbeat. Her mother is a deadbeat. Sherm, the prospective new stepfather, is a total dork. She doesn't have any real kind of stability in her life. We see that she comes in and leaves her room through the window instead of through the door. It's just, yeah, such a total mess. So I guess that's part of why I think that works is she's looking for that stability. Yeah, I have in my notes, I questioned why doesn't Catherine 
like put more restrictions on her? Why is she so lenient? And I, uh, I think Max explained it. Yeah. She's trying to be your best friend. Right. Right. So is there anything else in like cinematography writing that you want to talk about? So from cinematography, the first thing I noticed immediately in the opening shots was it looks to me to be about a half stop, half stop overexposed and a little desaturated. Mm -hmm. They went for a specific look. And I I think that kind of captures the washed out look that would be. Los Angeles, uh, you know, um, it's dry and everything. Yeah, this is a valley movie. Yeah. You could see that there was a mixture of handheld and sticks uh, work in the camera. Uh, You know, I'm not the hugest fan of of handheld, but it wasn't too bad. But I noticed that looked like in some cases, I think it was logistics, right? And that could have been, again, for speed more than anything else. I, I loved the horrible fluorescent lighting in the ER waiting room. Mm -hmm. And so they matched it very well. I had a question, which I don't know that we know the answer to when, when Erica first encounters Will in the grocery store and she's trying to pick him up, they either used a Steadicam or a Dolly. I don't know which as they move through the store. And I thought that was, to me, I would do it on a Dolly, but I would think that a Dolly would be faster and easier mm-hmm. and maybe grocery store floors are flat enough that they could pull that off mm-hmm. but i was curious how they did that shot yeah, they could have done tracks too right it, well except that we see the cameras pulling backwards so if it was on tracks we the, the tracks would come into, into oh view. i see what you're saying yeah yeah and then the last bit and this is we we both noticed how much fog there was at, over the <laughs> swimming pool um you actually could see it billowing out which tells oh, me <laughs> right and and so I, I have a separate note it's never cold in Tahunga, let alone cold <laughs> enough to generate fog off of the pool and the other thing with that shot it looks really cool because if you have a, a light uh, in the pool and the, the water's moving, it makes those really cool kind of wave-like light patterns. But how much the water was moving, I can tell you from a childhood spent in swimming pools, that's like six people cannonballing at the same time. Someone had to be off screen with like two by fours trying to do a wave machine deal to get that much water. Like, there's no one in the pool. How do you have waves? But okay. So that was, that was my, my, my cinematography. All right. So for costumes, I love Erica's sloppy style. Like she always seemed to have like dirty t-shirts and maybe they were trying to bring how beautiful Zoe Deutsch is down, you know, kind of to the level of poor Luke. Right. Well, I'm, I made a note early on is, and I'm asking this question Really, not, not not making a point. Would a teen girl wear nothing but a wife beater without any shirt over it? But I guess maybe she was trying to sell sex, so perhaps that was that was a calculated she, choice. She often would have like a lightweight sweat zip up sweatshirt or button up. Almost looks like a boy's or man's shirt, right? Like a Hawaiian shirt or something that she would have with it. So I think you're right. I think she was putting it on when, you know, putting that stuff over her white tank top when she didn't want to be sexy. And then when she wanted to be sexy, she would take it off. But speaking of costuming, I really loved the multiple different pairs of bodybuilder pants that Sherm wore Mm -hmm. for two reasons. One, Sherm did not appear to ever go to the gym. 
But also, oh man, I remember in the nineties, I had me some of those pants, fun colors, <laughs> you they're them? baggy. I kind of do actually. <laughs> I love their bad wigs and her sunglasses with the sticker still on the lens. Oh, and one of the things I got from that interview that I'll put in our show notes, a link to Leah Thompson dyed her hair, gave her the black roots and then the green on the ends. So it's funny when you said that, I was like, why are we talking about Leah Thompson dyeing her own hair? But then I realized what you meant. She dyed Zoe's hair. Yeah. I liked when right after the scene, I believe with the sheriff, I don't know if it's anyway, right after, but shortly after it's in the first third of the movie, we see her room and the first shot we see is a collection of my little ponies on like a dresser. Oh, wow. And then we see other things in her room that make are more iconic with like a teenager, but then she's looking on her computer at her spreadsheet, which I love girl after my own heart, a spreadsheet of not only the amounts of money that she's gotten from each of her extortions, but all the names of the men that she got these amounts from and on the stickers on her laptop cover were very juvenile for a girl, like more like an eight-year-old girl. It was like a dolphin and a a rainbow and, you know, a troll doll or you just different things that speak more to a a younger girl than a 17-year-old. And I, I thought that was well done because it kept reminding us, because like you said, she's 22 and with her bravado that she had, she could come off, I think, a lot older so we had to keep kind of putting it in people's faces like she's a minor. She's still a minor. And I made a note that when she, in the last scene of the film, when she goes to visit Luke in prison, she has on overall shorts instead of Daisy Dukes. And she has an alphabet bracelet, which both to me are more juvenile. Mm-hmm. So I think that was to show us that she had kind of, in some sense, grown down. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because of that relationship. How about some head trauma? So we have two uh, Erica punches Allie in the face. Allie deserved it. That's a righteous punch. Um, And then I'm going to go ahead and call it head trauma when Luke fails at hanging himself in the garage. Oh, that was rough. Yeah, Yeah. I forgot about that scene. See, that would... And that's a time where... She was out of her, she lost all bravado. Like she didn't know what to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. she was like, are you okay? And she went towards him and he said, don't touch me. And she just went, did she yell Sherm or did she yell mom? I I, I forget what she Like she was just like, somebody else needs to take care of this. I'm, I'm out of my league. Right. All right. So we, we already said they hooked up. Did we get like a nice kiss? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. I guess right before we have two smoochies. Okay, please. First, Will the pedophile kisses Erica in his car during the rainstorm at the bowling alley. And then we have after Erica and Luke do the Humpty Hump, uh, they have a nice sweet smoochie. Yeah, I I would love to think that these two made it. Let's say that. <laughs> um, how about a driving review? We know they took off. They went on the lamb. They, so. they did. So Sheriff's Deputy Cotter is driving a 2003 Ford Crown Vic, which is a classic cop car. And I will also mention, I think that year still qualifies in the Crown Victoria Racing League. 
So um, there's a racing league for ex-cop cars if individuals would like to participate. Sherm has a 96 Acura TL four-door sedan. And I think that's really good casting of the car because it shows that Sherm is trying to be upscale by having an Acura, but it's 20 years old. So that's all he could afford. And then speaking of all you could afford, Erica says that Will's 92 Saab 900 is an expensive car. And like, no, it's like 25 years old. I don't think it's that expensive anymore. It just shows that he's a pretentious douche. So uh, related to vehicles, Will has a line of dialogue that really bumped me. He says, I'll call you a cab. But by 2016, Uber was huge. I don't think there's any reason a person his age would say, other than call he you didn't, a cab. They, the producers didn't want to use a name. And you don't want to say, like, I'll call you a car sharing service. I, I thought call you a ride, but okay. Yeah. That, oh, there you go. Um, especially in Tahunga. How many cabs are there in Tahunga? Yeah, I don't okay. know. So I do want to give credit for driving. It is the appropriate thing to do to pull over to vomit. So do not vomit <laughs> while driving if possible. I'm not really sure why they showed him shifting the automatic transmission when they turned off the road onto a dirt road. Well, I might be able to help you with this. Okay, let me know. The actor, do you remember his name, who played Luke? I don't, Joey maybe? Oh, it was Joey Morgan. Joey did not know how to drive a stick and learned two days before he arrived on set, which was only one week before filming. And Max basically had him drive Zoe around to all the different locations. I'm wondering if there was a little bit of either Max wanted to get him shifting or just to like, did it, was he clumsy about it? Did that inform? It kind of didn't make any sense why, but if it was a manual, which I thought it looked like it was an automatic, but if it was a manual, maybe he was downshifting. Could have been. It just, I, I noticed it. I wasn't sure why he was shifting while he was turning. But that makes sense if uh, no, Joey's learning to drive. No, don't you always go to, to second when you're turning? You, you shift before you turn. You well, don't, oh, don't ask your car to do two I things at the same saying. time. Oh, okay. Um, I was, because I was like, you always slow down and go down to, okay. Right. But, uh, okay. So that, I just made a note of that. And then I, I will say all the credit they got for pulling over to vomit, they lost when they made out while the vehicle was still What's in motion. <laughs> so kids do not make out while operating just, a motor vehicle. It just kind of came to this slow start and they were headed towards a pretty large cactus, but when they bumped it, they had lost enough speed that it wasn't yeah, as violent okay. as I feared. So maybe that explains the shift. Maybe Max said, you got to get down into first before we film the scene, Joey, <laughs> yeah. or you're going to die. <laughs> maybe that's what it yeah. is. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. Okay. Like I said, this film came out in 2017. It had a budget of half a million dollars, which like I said, is a lot more than us, but but I, I really resonated with a lot of the things that they did and said. It has a six out of 10 on IMDb. Critics not so fond of this one. It huh. has 50% Rotten Tomatoes from the critics and 42% from the audience. And I wonder if the some of the audience had some of the issues that we did kind of Cert, not buying certain things. Like as we review this movie, I'm actually liking it more than yesterday when we got done. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is like that. It kind of, uh, it finishes a little bit better, right? Over <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah. It's, 
it's at an hour and a half, perfect amount of time, 90 minutes, you know, just throw it on on a Saturday afternoon when you got nothing else to do. As filmmaker Dustin often says, nobody ever says that movie was too short. Exactly. Exactly. It's rated R. It's listed as a comedy drama. And I think that's a good tag. It, I failed to say earlier with a budget of half a million, it brought in 328,000 domestically and worldwide 390. So unfortunately it was a loss. From that standpoint, yet it premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival where Max Winkler was nominated for a best narr- for best narrative feature as the director. Wow, he got into Tribeca. Yeah, I know. That's huge. It the studio was Rough House Pictures, which I I should look up. I'll put it in my notes to look it up. I wonder if that's Max's company. And it was filmed in Burbank at the Pickwick Bowl and Lancaster as well that where that motel was that they were watching the cartoons. So so this episode kicks us off for the month of December. If you want to see what other films we're going to talk about the remainder of the month, check out our social media on Facebook and Instagram. I'll be posting that. And congratulations to superfan RJ, who correctly guessed. He was the only guest, so I guess you guys have all given up on the contest. Um. <laughs> well... Uh, the people who are ineligible are still playing, but maybe the eligible voters are have given up. <laughs> so he correctly guessed that last month we were talking about horses. And so congratulations, superfan RJ. You will get to choose a film that we will talk about next year. Stay tuned later this month. We will talk about how we're going to pick the other films, I guess the other 40 films that we'll be talking about next year. But never forget. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. Thanks for listening to Dodge Movie Podcast with Christy and Mike Dodge of Dodge Media Productions. To find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.